Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. For seven weeks in 1993, Frankston was in lockdown as police hunted a serial killer who would continue to kill until he was caught. Homicide investigator Charlie Bessina was in charge of the first case, and was there to the end when Paul Charles Denyer was caught and confessed. Join me, John Sylvester, with Charlie on November 5 for the Inside Story, a Black Salmon event. Join Sly and Charlie in the hunt for the Frankston serial killer at the St Kilda Town Hall on November the 5th. Tickets at Eventbrite. Uh, Hello, and thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. And just a couple of things I'd like to ask you to consider. Firstly, my guests share their personal stories, which others may see differently. No one will see a situation the same. It's just human nature. Uh, Secondly, my podcasts aren't suitable for children and some adults for that matter. So please consider if it's right for you and contact Lifeline or any other support service if you find yourself affected by my subject matter. By the end of the day, it all turned to shit because he escaped out of the back of the police car on the way to the watch house. And uh, the last time we saw Victor was running down Little Lonsdale Street at a fast rate of knots. Between 1979 and 2000, Dave McGowan protected us in his role as a member of Victoria Police. After a few years of general duties, Dave became a detective in 1985, and like me, he just loved being a detective. In 1988, he went to what we called in the job the robbers, the armed robbery squad, and I can tell you, as a newly appointed constable at that stage, the robbers were held in the same high esteem and regard and fear uh, as the SOG, the uh, Special Operations Group. They were tough men who played tough, but you had to when dealing with the hardest of hardened criminals such as Russell Mad Dog Cox, who interestingly Chopper Reed referred to as the Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson of bank robbers. There was also Victor Brinkat, considered one of the most prolific bank robbers of the time, who held up 19 banks, and Hugo Rich, a cold-blooded killer who held up numerous banks and armour guard vans, killing one of its guards. And uh, did I mention Wall Street as well? That's a fairly impressive CV, I would have thought. 
But Dave left VicPol in 2000 at the rank of Detective Sergeant and he joined the corporate world, not surprisingly specialising in employee corruption. In his role, he established 12 regional investigative teams based in 11 countries, covering 31 countries in total, with crimes including murders, drug trafficking, slavery, gun running and rape. But it could be argued that Dave's most valued contribution to society is the role that he now holds as CEO of Police Veterans Victoria PVV, where he's determined and succeeding in ensuring all police veterans are recognised for the sacrifices and trauma that they experienced in their career and continue to experience years after they've left VicPol. So uh, thanks for your time, Dave, and uh, for what you do and PVV do uh, for veterans like myself. So you're on a bit of a high today, Dave. Tell us tell us why. Bore us with why. <laughs> right. So, uh, well, quite an introduction. Thank you. I feel very privileged to get on your podcast, Narelle. You're, um, you're quite the uh, famous podcaster these days. Oh, settle down, Dave. Hmm. Settle down. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> Um, but you are on a bit of a high today. Can you tell us why? Oh, that's right. Yes. So, uh, Cats won on Saturday, um, our 10th grand final flag, 10 years since the low, 11 years since the last one. So, yep, very happy in Geelong Town and uh, anywhere else with a Geelong supporter. Been great. Yeah. Big win. Yeah. Big win. Uh, as a non, my husband barracks for Geelong, but as a non Geelong supporter, uh, I found it a bit boring to be honest but you'd never ever feel like that being a cat supporter but congratulations it, it really was um a fantastic game sure was yeah i've watched the replay four times i've watched, watched it straight <laughs> after the game <laughs> so yeah only four yeah My so far and i went yeah yeah when the tigers won uh well a few years back now but when they won uh, yes, we probably – I still look at it every now and then if I want to feel really good. I still put on the Tigers uh, premiership. Mm. So, no, it's uh, you can't get enough of it, can you? No, it's great. No, they're, too, they're hard to get, so you relish the ones you got. And you don't realise how hard they are to get, do you? No. Like that, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a big thing. Like when you think about, and we won't talk football for too long because not everybody loves footy like you and I, but when you think about danger and – uh, the fact that he's uh, won every accolade known to man, but he never had a premiership medal around mm. his neck. Yeah, you know. So I know. Yeah, and then look at Joel Selwood. He's he's the consummate leader, isn't he? He has done so much. And then to see him face off against Buddy Franklin, uh, what was it? Um, Fifteen, fourteen years since the last time they faced off in a grand final. They're still playing yeah. first class footy. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So um, anyway, apologies to everybody out there. Just uh, give Dave and I just a little <laughs> bit of leeway because we do love our footy. Anyway, look, uh, I just want to go back, uh, Dave, if we could, to your CV. It's pretty impressive. Oh, thank you. Uh, I wanted and I'd like to go straight to the time that you spent with the robbers because that would interest a lot of people. Uh, firstly, I just wonder if the public are aware that the robbers – had their own uniform. Would you care to explain that uniform? Or no, I? no, I can do it. So um, <laughs> when I, my wife, when we when we met, I was working at the in the robbers then, and um, 
she's she went to my wardrobe for some reason and she said, This is all you've got. One black suit, five white shirts and a black squad tie. I said, That's it. That's the kit. <laughs> Except in winter when we were allowed to wear a bluey, which we bought from um what was it, Army Disposals up in Russell Street. That was our yeah. uniform. And you didn't wear anything else. That black tie was uh was sacred. It was hard to earn and and you wore it everywhere. So yeah, pretty funny. Yeah. No no colour yeah. there. Uh- <laughs> Uh, oh no, no colour because you couldn't be accused of you know going outside that uniform. You wouldn't dare wear a different sort of a tie. But what we used to think, oh, you know, young girls, you know, joining the job, and you always used to have these rather healthy biceps. Every and and you very rarely wore the jacket because that didn't show off your biceps. They were always short sleeves and you never, well, I rarely saw you wear it, not you, but just the robbers in general. Mm. I never saw you wear the jacket unless you were going to court. Correct. It's the only time you ever wore the jacket. (laughs) I know, that's very true. Oh, dear. Um, uh, Yeah, and I must admit um, you did have, the robbers had this, the, the homicide squad have this reputation of having what's called the homicide squad strut. And that was, you know, chest out, you know, head held high. And uh, I used to think that was quite funny. But uh, the robbers had the same strut, didn't they? You probably didn't notice, but you did. Mm, No, I didn't notice really. (laughs) Mm, Um, No, I I didn't. I don't imagine you would. (laughs) Um, So... Tell us about your involvement. I, in the intro, I talked there about um, Russell, Russell Mad Dog Cox. Um, I believe I did a little bit of uh, research for today and I found out that Russell Cox is now living a peaceful life. I'm sure it's him in country Victoria as a gardener, I think. Does that surprise you? Uh, not at all, but it's not, it's not Victoria. He's up Queensland somewhere. Where, oh, okay. Um, yep. I think right. he's up on, um, I actually did hear it was Stradbroke Island or one of those places. No, it doesn't surprise yeah. me. Not that. We really knew much about him, but he was very low-key. He did not want to bring attention on himself when he was on the run, obviously, but in, even mm. as a prisoner, I think he was a model prisoner. When his time was mm. up, he was out, um, mm. which makes him a bit smarter than the rest of the plot, doesn't it? Yes, and you wouldn't – yeah, it, it does. But can you tell the listeners a little bit about your involvement or what Russell um, Cox did mm. and why the armed robbery squad were involved with him? Cox was a escapee. He'd been on the run for 10 years and he was on the top of the 10 most wanted. So the major crime squad had the top 10 uh, fugitives that, that were on their list to search for at any time and Cox was on the top of that for the entire time. He was notoriously known as a gun for hire in the underworld, um, was linked to a number of underworld murders, um, robberies, payrolls, banks, he he did the full suite. Um, everyone knew he existed. No one knew where he, where he moved and what he did. But um, do you want me to go straight to Doncaster here? Or? No? Absolutely. Yeah, you go yeah. where you like, okay. Dave. Yeah, I know the listeners will be interested. Yep. Uh, July 88. So I, I, I can't believe it's um, 34 years ago. But July 88, there was a Brambles uh, – Armoured truck doing a delivery, cash delivery at Doncaster Shopping Centre. They saw a car following them around and they called it through to their base. We had direct contacts with Armaguard and Brambles at, back at the squad. They rang up mm. and said, "We think we're going to get. We think we're getting cased. We're going to get hit." Um, oh, what an awful feeling for them! Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. by chance, there were a number of crews out that part of town. 
Um, two of them went into Doncaster, met the guards, got a description of the car, found it. One of the guys went in, had a look, found some stuff belonging to Ray Denning, who was an escapee from, I think, Goulburn. Um, so we we figured we had an escapee to grab. Um, so Fish Mullet was running the – he was one of the sergeants. Fish set up a quick um, plan. Everyone put themselves in different spots. We watched uh, the occupants come back to that car, and as they came back, another car pulled up. Um, then, they dro- then they both pulled out. So the question was, what do we do? Fish said, let's grab them both. That was about the extent of the planning. Uh, the first car was intercepted head on. Um, Denning and his passengers were arrested at gunpoint, taken out. The other driver of the other car turned out to be Russell Cox, um, was trying very desperately to get away. Um, he didn't want a confrontation, but he, he was armed and he had a thirty eight revolver in his hand. He was just trying to find a way out of that car park, but every time he turned, there was someone was cutting him off. He ran out of options and uh, crashed into the back of the loading bay at the back of Myers where a couple of the other guys in the squad had exchanged, well, not exchanged, had fired on the car. Uh, Cox was taken out put on the ground. The car was pretty much riddled with bullet holes. We were all reasonably convinced that he was, he'd been shot dead, but um, not one not one bullet hit him. It hit every part of the car. Um, he had some cuts and bruises, but that was it. Paramedics checked him out and said, uh, he's all yours. We thought we were going to call the undertakers, but they said, no, you, you don't need anybody yeah. except a tow truck for this car. <laughs> So um, yeah. it wasn't until he was taken back into the squad that night um, when he was fingerprinted that we found out actually who it was. Um, oh, up right. until then, So you had no idea no. at the time that it was Russell Cox? Not at all. Didn't say a word. We didn't – would say, hello, thank you, can I have a glass of water, but that's it. Um, he wasn't interested in any dialogue, but he did, he did say, you'll be surprised when you realise who I am. I think it was Kay Murphy and our, our collator said, what are you, Russell Cox or somebody? And he sniggered <laughs> and goes, Kay goes, oh, maybe he is. So they ran upstairs <laughs> to the fingerprint bench and came bolting back down and said, it is him. <laughs> oh, wow. I know, wow. I know. Yeah. So um, that story that story still, it's still become stuff of legends. It's still talked about now. Um, it was an extraordinary day. I was just a peripheral player on it, but it was an extraordinary day to be part of. Uh, I was going to say, what was your role there? Were you involved in any of the um, uh, um, the cart? Like, uh, uh, what, I was uh, part of. There was about, oh, I think it was about sixteen of us from the squad that all turned up there in various positions around the car park. But the the actual arrest, two arrests, were contained in in a very short period of time. Um, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was in it but not on the peripheral, fair to say. And and so they didn't actually get to hold up the armour guard van, is that correct? No, didn't happen. I'm not sure that, Narelle, they, they were even going to do it. Okay. But um, oh, right. Denning's okay. passenger pulled a baller on his head and so that was a reasonable assumption from the Brambles guys. But I think they were actually there just to meet Cox and um, as fate played it, um, the wrong bloke saw the wrong stunt and it all ended in tears for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you mentioned there um, Denning. Mm. Can you tell the listeners about Denning as well? Because he was uh, a prolific uh, robber as well, wasn't he? Yeah, Dan, uh, Ray was very prolific, more particularly in New South Wales and down here. Um, <clears throat> in and out of jail, um, 
pretty had a pretty violent upbringing. Um, quite a proficient stick-up merchant himself, um, and obviously good at running and escaping because he managed to do it a number of times. Hmm. Or, or we, the police, were pretty bad. Pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> One of the two. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what was – if Russell Cox was so good at what he did, hmm. what was his problem? Why did he uh, do these sort of stick-ups and – like that's big time. That's serious – pardon me, serious shit. That's not just, you know, um, hold, holding a knife or something. Like that's oh, big well, time. Yeah, well – Russell Cox. His real name's Schnitzeling, did you know? Russell Schnitzeling. I think um, I might have read that somewhere, yeah. 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 So he was part of a generation that were professional uh, stick-up merchants. That was their profession. They planned and executed and lived off the earnings of armed robberies. And armed robberies were very commonplace. Like I went into the squad in 88. We would be investigating two or three banks a week. Every Friday afternoon, without fail, there would be a bank held up somewhere in Melbourne or regional Victoria. Payroll trucks started to become more um, target of choice because they were holding more cash, and so the risks were higher, but the rewards were bigger. Banks started to change the way they managed cash. Cash handling procedures changed. There was less cash in the drawers. Banks were located in more prominent spots. It was very hard for the um, crooks to hit the bank and, and get away cleanly. Um, but Cox, essentially, he was part of a, of a professional – that was his job. Um, and some people became coppers and some became crooks. Yeah. He became a crook. Yeah, and, and you're right. I don't think the younger generation now understand how prolific uh, armed robberies were. I mean, that's oh, why yep. we had the armed robbery squad. They were just out of control, weren't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so, like I left four and a half years later, there was maybe one bank a month was held up. Yeah. And I don't think banks get held up anymore. Um, if you walk into a bank now, it doesn't look like a bank I used to go to. Um, no. They've got little computer desks and little pop-out um, shelves that like act yeah. as a concierge. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing like it. So, yeah, you know, right. the pen did become mightier than the sword, didn't it? Fraud's much more <laughs> fraud's much more lucrative now than doing violent crime. Oh yeah, yeah. And what about Hugo Rich? Hugo, yep. Um, well, his real name's Olaf Dietrich. He's probably um, he's a very dangerous individual. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> infamous. Um, I wouldn't say he's famous. He's infamous for a whole lot of reasons. Um, he uh, created case law. He created Dietrich's case, which was that you can't be tried without legal representation. He was caught importing drugs into Australia and um, convicted. Uh, he appealed, went to the High Court. The High Court created that ruling, but by then he'd served his sentence, so the Crown didn't bother to run him again. Hmm. Um, after that, he, um, he he was just a criminal for life. We got involved in, in investigating him um, back in 1990, 91, he and two others were doing a series of um, robberies on banks and armoured trucks in metropolitan Melbourne. We ran a, a very complex operation that ran for months. Um, he, and his, he and his sidekick were stealing cars from the Melbourne airport. They were businessmen's cars, so he worked out a way to break into the car um, by popping the back door handle on these EA Fords and... He would drive off out through the inbound boom gates um, and go, and those cars weren't reported stolen because 
by average, the owner was a businessman who was travelling interstate. So we had a free run. Uh, we knew the cars all came from the airport. That was the only common denominator. Uh, after, us, after they became a series and we realised the pattern, then we ran surveillance operations out at the airport, some abysmal disasters. But eventually um, we struck gold, um, saw them stealing a car, followed them away with the surveillance crews, um, took them to a house, got the phones tapped, and uh, we were off and running. And then we had a full-on operation running for about four months until we eventually arrested them. At the time, um, they hit a, a bank out at Blackburn, um, we missed him at the changeover, um, got him at, almost got him at the house. We had the SOG guys jumping fences, heading towards his place in, in Turak, lived in the better part of town, Hugo. And uh, he, got, he saw them coming, got away, was eventually arrested about four hours later in Punt Road, um, sitting in the back of a cab and in the boot was his Davy Jones locker, as he called it, which was full of guns, disguises and cash. Oh, and um, that was the end of um, of Hugo's demise. But he was just – he was a nasty, vicious, violent criminal um, and inflicted a lot of grief and a lot of pain on, on, on many people. He eventually he did, he went to trial. He killed somebody, yeah. didn't he? He did, yeah. So yeah. the the ones – the matters that we investigated him for, um, Mick Gunn and Graham Kent, and I were, it was our job. He uh, – it was a three-month – Three-month committal, five-month pre-trial hearings, uh, four-month trial. Um, he he fought for everything. He was a nightmare. At the yeah. time we arrested him, he said he called it exhausting the opposition, and he said, "You got no idea who what you've taken on with me." And we just shrugged our shoulders and said, "Give it your best shot." And he did. He did everything to try and avoid a jury trial. Uh, to the point, he threatened the prosecutor in the trial. He threatened the judge. Um, he'd sack his he'd sack his counsel. He'd try and get the juries disqualified. In the committal, he bronzed up because he didn't want to come to court. So, if anyone doesn't know what that means, that's when you strip off your clothes, cover yourself in your own excrement, and then march into court. Mm. Mm. How do you reckon that went down? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, not well. No. So, um, and that particular investigation, that was probably the biggest one I've ever been involved in. It was seven years of my life. By the time it was all finished. Um, these are long haul investigations. They're not um, they're not quick fixes, but that's what you're going to the squads for. You, yeah. you go in for the big jobs. You, you do, and I, and I don't think the the general public realise, and you wouldn't expect them to, mind you, but realise the amount of work that goes into getting somebody to court, and then you get somebody like him. Like he would have been the worst person you ever. Uh, dealt with in a court situation, like as you say, he tried every trick in the book. Yeah, uh, yep. it is just so frustrating. And in the end, it's not about the crime that he committed; it's about trying to beat the system. It's just mm. so wrong, isn't it? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Sometimes I wish we had an inquisitorial system where everything got included, but yeah. our justice system is all about excluding what you can. Um, and um, and he knows how to exploit it. He he used to advise other prisoners about how to approach it. Someone called him a Philadelphia lawyer, whatever that means. Yeah, but, um, yeah. You, you could tell the pattern started to emerge. You know, they were subpoenaing every every ridiculous thing from petrol logbooks and running sheets to the fuel card expenditure to see that the you you driven the miles that you said you drove that day. All that sort of nonsense. Yeah. But- 
but also it's hard for the court to say no to a lot of that because most people would um, um, say, well, yes, okay. They wouldn't go to the lengths that he did. And in the end, I suppose he was just hoping he'd say, you know, I give up. (laughs) That's that's what he wanted. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's his plan. I'll exhaust the opposition. I'll just wear you down. And uh, like that was just never going to happen. Even if that was the only thing we ever did for the rest of our police careers, we would have mm. seen that through. Mm. And uh, Graham Kenny, who Graham is a particularly talented investigator, and um, it was just never going to happen. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, never he did. Met his so, match. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. Yeah. So eventually he got convicted of all those hold ups, and the evidence we had was enormous. You know, we had. Uh, phone taps, surveillance, um, disguises, clothes matched to the from the photos in the bank holdups. It's pretty good corroboration, stolen, isn't it? <laughs> uh, stuff yeah. from the cars. We had a guy, like he'd steal the Melways and the cassettes out of a stolen car and then do a hold up with that car and take a hundred grand. Why take the cassettes for? Because he's just a petty criminal. Yeah. Can't help himself. Yeah. And the yeah. funny story, one of the funny stories of that was we had this engineer who was giving evidence saying, yeah, my car was stolen from the airport and that, that cassette there, that was mine. Well, how do you know that's yours? Well, see the formation of those cracks in the corner? <laughs> I found that fascinating and I studied that quite for quite a long time and I was disappointed when that case was gone because it was fascinating to me because of the stress cracks on it. Like, how oh do you beat that? Oh, my God. How do <laughs> and, you beat that? Yeah. And that, that cassette, that was in his house. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. God, you must have, oh, the stories you must be able to tell. I, I'll just ask for one more. And like I said, we could listen to these stories. Well, yeah, I could. I'm sure the listeners could. Tell us a little mm. bit about Victor Brinkat. Victor was, yeah, Victor was a um, very prolific bank robber, but different in that he, he always worked alone. He was very short, about five foot tall, always up on his toes. That um, is short. Oh, I know, yeah, little little Maltese nugget. Um yeah. Call, All the holdups you, you did. It, you can say it, Dave. A short <laughs> ass. We call it the SAS, the short ass syndrome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, he would he would run into a bank up on his toes because he had to. Um, <laughs> tell go to the bank teller. I want the big notes, hundreds and fifties. Um, had a balaclava on, but he had such a bull head that you could recognise it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. If we were. If you needed, we needed an SME, subject matter expert on recognising shapes of heads under ballast, he yeah. would have been a great um, topic to discuss. Case study. Yeah, case study. So, Victor, yeah. he, he did the banks and he'd run and he never had an accomplice and it was never seen in a car. So, um, he was very – but we knew. We had good mail. He was good for a lot of these hold-ups during the 80s. He went to South Australia and was serving a sentence over there for a bank hold-up. One of the investig- one of the detectives from here went to talk to him, but not not about stick ups, mm. about something else. I can't remember what it was now. And he thought that that it was the Melbourne Armed Robbery Squad coming to get him for the banks. And he went back to his it was a low um, low security country prison, picked up his kit, jumped the fence, and did a runner. Um, <laughs> came straight to Melbourne and hit a bank within a day. As soon as that bank was, we knew who it was. So we ran a pretty good investigation on Victor. He did four in the, in the run. We caught him uh, in a taxi outside a travel agent in North Melbourne heading to airport for his one-way trip back to Malta. Um, pretty good job uh, catching him. Mm. But um, by the end of the day, it all turned to shit because he escaped out of the back of the police car on the way of the watch house. And 
last time we saw Victor was running was running down um, Little Lonsdale Street at a fast rate of knots, and we didn't see him again until well, that was the third of May, nineteen ninety. Not that the date is um, big in my mind. Yeah. Um, we didn't see him again until the following January when he was caught up in Nanango, Queensland, in a caravan, um, and we brought him back down. So, yep, very unusual. Unusual character. He did banks all around the country. We now crossed to Western Australia. Got convicted of some banks over there. Hmm. Um, got involved with the underworld when he got out, and um, he's sort of out there now, somewhere else. I I can't I can't get my head around how somebody uh, could escape from the back of a police car uh, unless. The bolts hadn't been put on, and the padlock yep. and everything—is that what happened? Pretty much. Um, oh, okay. There was going to be well, there was going to be two two carloads take him up because he was a big he was a big catch. Yeah. And um, I was at the, in the basement car park with his bags, and I and he had them, and I was grabbing him. and I doing a stupid tug of war to mm. put him in the boot. Mm. One of the other guys said, "I oh, don't worry about it. He didn't go anywhere." So I said, "Fine." Got in the front seat. He got in the back seat. Uh, the kitty locks weren't switched. He wasn't handcuffed. And uh, as we got oh. up towards the Trobe Street, I said to um, the sergeant in the car, I said, you know there's going to be media there. You can't get out holding his luggage. He goes, all right, put him on. As I leaned back, he took his chance. Oh. He stuck an elbow into um, Stash's head and he opened the door and he was gone. <gasps> and that was it. That was what happened. Oh, pardon me, but did you get any shit over that? Oh yeah, we got charged. Um, with we had what? To front, with failing to secure a prisoner, so um, we got paraded in front of the chief commissioner of the day. We didn't lose our spots in the squad. Um, mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. But we got paraded in front of the chief, read out the charge sheet, got good behaviour bonds and said, now go back and find him. So, um, and we did um, just do some lot of really good legwork by one particular guy, Peter Lawler, did a lot of legwork in tracking him down. Desperate legwork, leg I would think, think, to get you off the hook. <laughs> uh, oh, determined, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Determined yeah, legwork yeah, because we had yeah. to, you know, it was such a good win and we were just riding on it. And the majors, major crime boys were in a bit of trouble and mm. uh, it was a bit of a saving grace for them. Some say it was a stay of execution because they were all deployed all over the place trying to find this bloke. And yeah, I think yeah. the, the powers that be realised there was a need for those squads. Um, but anyway, we, we eventually got him back and um, I don't know how much time he did for those for those hold-ups. Yeah. And then he got out and uh, he got into trouble again and haven't much heard since. You know, I can't imagine that sickening feeling of when they escape and they're running and you think, I'm, I am. Oh, This is like the, this is like my worst nightmare. We're supposed to be going back, getting pats on the back and having beers, uh, celebrate a good outcome. And this is what we got. A bit of complacency was a, was a heavy, was a big price to pay for that level of complacency. That's for sure. Yeah, and and I think what you're saying, the lesson there is always handcuff your crooks or put the kitty locks on, whatever it be. But you, yeah, you're well, right. I mean, normally you'd have two people in the back seat. You'd have them between two two detectives, yeah, wouldn't you? You're right. Yeah, you'd have them trussed up like a yeah. Christmas turkey. Yeah. But no. But anyway, <laughs> oh, um, boy. we survived to tell it, and we picked him up. It was funny because they, when they got him in the caravan, the tactical guys wanted to do the arrest in the caravan and the bosses wouldn't let them. Mm. So they put a loudspeaker outside his caravan at three in the, four in the morning and called on him to surrender. And, of course, true to fashion, Victor came flying out the door and ran away from the sound <laughs> yeah. straight into the arms of the tactical guys. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. um, wasn't, the, wasn't the arrest they would have uh, liked to have planned, but either way we got him back. Yeah. Yep. Gee, you must have been relieved that day. Oh, oh yeah, very late, very relieved. Oh, what a, what a, you know, the only, and I've never had a, a crook escape from me, but I can remember uh, putting an LD on somebody, uh, on a, a the wife of the crook, and we found out when she came back, he actually admitted to a murder, and we were mm. doing, you know, cartwheels, thinking how good is this, and when we played the tape back, the tape had failed. Uh, and I will never forget that sickening feeling, but that's not having a crook escape from me. Like I, that's the only comparison I can make, and that was an awful feeling that day. But to have so, – anyway, we won't go on about it because you must have nightmares about it still. No, I did for a long time, <laughs> but uh, I, I take comfort Sorry in the fact that – reminding you. <laughs> I know, but I take comfort in the fact that we learn more from our mistakes than our successes. So um, no one ever escaped again, Narelle. I bet <laughs> I bet they did it. My God. Hey, did you ever fear for your life at any time when you were at the robbers? Um 
probably w- once in the very beginning, we had a job running. It was Operation No Name, um, which was what led to Wall Street ultimately. And oh, okay. back then, every job had to have a, a name. And, um, you know, the Intel people say, well, what's the name of this operation? And mm. I think it was Fish said, well, it's got no name. No, but every job has to have a name. He goes, but this one's got no name. He goes, well, what do we call it? He goes, we'll call it No Name. <laughs> <laughs> so that's um, a bit of black humour, but that's yeah, so Operation yeah. No Name, um, and we were we were they were running the running the dogs, so the surveillance crews on a, on a crew that were planning to do a bank. We didn't know which one it was, we didn't know when, mm. yeah. but we knew they were planning it. So you'd spend months up at three a.m. kitted up, tooled up, form up at the back of. Uh, um, one, whether it's in a back of Baronia police station, it was back then. And we sat in the cars and we had ceramic plated um, chess bulletproof vests that were new, but they'd sit and they'd ride up under your chin and it felt like you were wearing Ned Kelly's armour. Yeah, well, and we had yeah, shotguns yeah. strapped on and revolvers at your feet. And here's the plan. So if they go in and it's too late to stop them and they call it in, then, then you, you had to let the job run because it, the, the risk of something going really bad in a siege situation was was too high. Yeah, yeah. We're going to cut them off down there and then we'll come in. And there were days and you like you're up at four and you're sitting in the car tooled up thinking, I'm going to die today. This is going to be it. This is going to be like this is going to be like in the movies. Uh, it's like Reservoir Dogs. What the hell am I doing here for? What, mm-hmm. what, what did I think this was a good place to come to? <laughs> um, and then you'd be psyched <laughs> up for it and then by about 8, 8.30 – the job's off. Hmm. The dogs are called off. It wasn't a goer that day. Yeah, it wasn't a goer. So then you then you then you tool down, and then you go back to the office and um, go about your normal day. So you know the adrenaline, the build up for that, yeah. and sitting yeah. in the car thinking, I'm really not sure how this is going to play out. Yeah, that was the only time that I really, and I was just brand new in there. And it was like holy shit. Yeah. Then yeah. <laughs> um, as it turned out, they never did it. So. Oh really. No, they never did the hold up. Not that time, not oh, that right crew. Right. Um, okay. Other jobs we've caught them on the on the go, but not that one. Um, okay. So, and, yeah. and so, who was? Um, you've talked uh, about some pretty good crooks there. Who's the most dangerous criminal you've ever had dealings with? Oh, here goes. He's at the top of the list. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, he's he's right up there. I mean, once he got out of serving his sentence for the um, robberies we charged him with. He went and executed a guard up at um, Blackburg, um, Blackburn, uh, Kastenberger. Um, Same MO, exactly the same MO. Um, And he just put him to his knees and executed him. He didn't need to. Um, It wasn't trying to stop him escaping. The the guard didn't even resist him. So, um, and he was caught for that and now he's back in prison and he'll never be released, which is a good thing. He's the most dangerous one that I've had direct dealings with. By far. Wow. Okay. Mm. Gee, that, yeah, that's, I don't know why. I mean, hearing that, yes, I understand. But I, when I look at Hugo Rich, he doesn't look like, say, uh, with all due respect to Chopper, but he doesn't look like a Chopper Reed or a, um, a Mad Dog Cox, does he? He's, he's quite a handsome I hate to admit it, but he is, isn't he? Or I'm thinking of the right person. He's the one that yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, him. Threatened, threatened Carolyn Douglas, the judge. Carolyn, that's right. She was the yeah. prosecutor in our trial. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was uh, He was a big, strong, good-looking Aryan oh, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, Olaf Dietrich, he's, he's 
of direct German descent. Um, yeah. And he dressed immaculately. He wore, yes. Um, yeah. He wore the best designer suits you could get. He changed his name from Olaf Dietrich to Hugo Rich because he liked Hugo Boss suits and uh, he wanted to be rich. <laughs> Uh, he had a job as a stockbroker. He was actually as a working as a stockbroker for a firm in Melbourne who didn't do background checks because they weren't necessary then. Yeah. And he was advising them. When, when we went and visited them after we arrested him, yeah. the look on their face was yeah. priceless. Yeah. They had no idea who yeah. they had amongst them, a yeah. nasty, vicious, violent criminal. But and a very intelligent criminal. Mm. Yep. Mm. And can, can be charismatic until he doesn't get his own way. And then watch out. So, um, yep, I lived in Turak and drove a BMW. And was he married? Do you know, and, married and no. children, or no? He had a daughter from an earlier marriage. Um, okay. He had a partner. Who, I think she stuck around with him for a long time after. Don't know if she's still with him or not. Mm. Um, but very manipulative. Um, difficult. We, we raided his cell once, and uh, that was an interesting exercise. <laughs> Prisoners don't like coppers going into their cells, their little homes. No. And uh, he didn't like us going in there. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> and, and can you share, luck. was there anything in there that – Oh, we wanted stuff off his off – his, he had a computer. He was very computer literate for the okay. day. He was ahead of most. And um, there was stuff on his computer that was relevant to our case, so we wanted it and we got it. Oh, good. Okay. Mm. Well, he wasn't that intelligent. He wasn't that clever. <laughs> No, like I said, he's still he spent almost his entire life in prison. Anyone that calls him a good crook is mistaken. He's not good. He's yeah. just um, yeah. repetitive and violent. Mm. Okay. And on the opposite Ooh. side, is there a criminal that you particularly liked? Liked? Not really. No. I didn't really personalise them. They didn't mean anything to me. I didn't care about them. Um, they were just part of the process. And so you did what you needed to do to get what you needed out of them um, in terms of I'll be your friend and I'll show you some sympathy and uh, I'll buy some I'll buy your lunch and um, but no I never really I never really related to them Narelle. Um they were nothing well, to I me they were just suppose, part of the process and I suppose you wouldn't because they are violent like somebody like Hugo Rich they are violent dangerous people that mm. murder people because they they just happen to be there or whatever so yep, that's right yeah yeah um do you think your time at the robbers affected you psychologically hmm. I don't think so others might <laughs> um no, no, I don't. Uh, to me, it was just this great adventure and there were some brilliant minds, some really – like, you know, we talk about the armed robbery squad being hard men and all that, but <clears throat> the blokes I work with were all really committed, very smart, very detailed, very articulate detectives and I really enjoyed that. Um, I liked the camaraderie of the place. I liked the fact that a job was on, the whole squad was on it. Everyone was in. Um, there was no no turf control, no, this is my job. It was all in. Um, it sounds very different to the, like what from what I've heard, I've never been uh, involved with anything to do with the drug squad, but it sounds to me very different where the drug squad had a lot of issues. It, it sounds to me like you were the complete or the robbers were the complete opposite. Uh, yeah, I don't. I can't really compare. Um, all I know is what how we operated, and 
we had a really we had good bosses, good sergeants, we were good crews. It was just a really great time. Some real oh, characters, you know. Yeah, everyone yeah. loves nicknames, but I think about squirty, spurt, filthy, nasty, gull, Larry. <laughs> what Sigi, was yours? Magoo. <laughs> nothing. I had that since I was a kid, though. So nothing oh. particularly amusing about it. But you know how it works, Narelle. If you get a nickname, and coppers love nicknames. Oh, um, half the time I didn't know what people's name, real names were. I just knew yeah. them as their as their nickname. Um, yeah. And I suppose the reason I asked if you've ever been, uh, if you were affected by your time at the robbers. Did you have a lot of dealings with the, say, the the victims that like? Bank robberies, the uh, mm. effect that that would have on the staff and the tellers, etc., would be just yep. horrific. Did, yep. I suppose that's where my question might be more pertinent. Did you have any dealings with those victims? Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I think that's probably one of the areas I, I was better at than, than most. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you, these people, sometimes they were kids, the bank tellers. Um, one young guy, I won't say his name, but he was one of the victims of uh, Dietrich's um, crime spree. He was put on his knees with a gun at the back of his head. Oh, um, yeah. Kevin Parker saying, I'm, gonna st- I'm just going to do the kid right. And Dietrich saying, oh. uh, maybe, maybe not. Like, yeah. you know, that guy had to go through not only that experience, but the trial and the retrial and the committal and... Yeah. We did a really good job of keeping our victims safe and um, not just after the scene but at court and at the trial. You know, they'd, the banks would bring in their uh, EAP counsellors but often they would do more damage. So we'd, we'd bring them in and say, okay, here's the courtroom. Here's where you're going to stand. Here's where the crook's going to be. That's the jury sit there. When it's all over, um, you're not on trial, they are. When it's all over, we'll go to the pub for have a beer. Yeah, great. Like we had good relationships. Um, another one, Ellen Dempsey. She was she was taken hostage in a shootout out at um, Laverton. Ellen's son Gary was a fo- footballer. For oh yeah, Gary Dempsey. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So um, this crew, Jones, Dunn, and Brooks, they did a bank in Yarra- in Nainzid in Yarraville. Mm. Um, that's a good story. You want me to tell you? Please do. We've got all the time in the world. Yeah, go. All right. So, 89, uh, Phil, Phil Jones, Gary Dunn, Graham Brooks. Uh, Phil Jones had a, had a loan with the ANZ Bank. Bank manager rings him in the morning and says, oh, Mr. Jones, your home loan's out of order again. No worries. I'll be in later on to fix it up. Um, about an hour later, he did go in to fix it up with two sidekicks, an armalite rifle, a welded H-frame, and... Um, a lot of violence and they went storming into the bank. They rammed this welded frame into the screen, told the teller to hit the, hit the pop-up screens. They dived straight over, got all the cash, um, took off and they went down through Yarraville. They dumped the first car. They ran across Crookshank Park and a kindergarten teacher was looking out the window and saw three men in balaclavas and overalls running across the park and she first thought, hmm, maybe that's a movie couldn't see the cameras and thought, well, that's really odd. So she re- she saw him get in a car and she called it up. Um, at this stage, the call's gone out for the bank hold-up and um, the operators match the descriptions to the changeover car and then they call that. As soon as that broadcast goes out, the TOG car coming from Werribee, the traffic guys, 
were at the lights in um, Hoppers Crossing and they said, oh, we're sitting right behind that car right now. <gasps> yeah. And um, we're coming over the Westgate Bridge at about 160, oh. pulling out the shoddies and tooling up ready for action. Yeah. And as the traffic guy says um, – they're just moving off. The operator tells him, just take caution. You know, these be involved in a hold-up. They're believed armed. Oh, we should tell you, we're just doing the mail run. We don't have any guns on us. <laughs> and uh, bad call because they're scanning it. And as he said that, they pulled up. Oh. Uh, the passenger jumped out, Phil Jones, and opened fire with the armor light rifle, which just looks like an M16, Yeah. Uh, at the police car. So they reversed back at a fast rate of knots. Crooks took off down Leaks Road. They spun it. Uh, in the intersection, got the car bogged outside a farmhouse and ran in and took the occupant hostage, which was Ellen Dempsey. And Ellen was cooking in the kitchen. <gasps> they grabbed her, they threw her in her car, and then they came out into Palmer's Road and then they come. By this stage, there was a big oh. roadblock set up, uh, two roadblocks set up to block any escape. Hmm. They pull up about 100 metres maybe from the roadblock. Jones gets out, waves this rifle in the air and says, he says, We've got a hostage. All the police heard was, we're going to take as many of you as we can. It was very windy. <laughs> um, right. Right. So they opened fire, the police. Uh, oh Jones God. got back mm. in the car, reversed back, hit an SEC pole, crashed. They all got arrested. Mm. Wedged under the back of the driver's seat was poor old Ellen Dempsey. <gasps> and, um, oh, poor Ellen. I know. So she survived her injuries, but she became a friend for a long time to me. And um, oh. even when I was getting married, my wife and I called in and said hello. Yeah. So you form friendships with victims like that and um, all your focus goes towards helping and supporting them. The crooks are uh, just um, part of the process, like I said. So, um, And um, the best thing you do is solve the crime for them. Mm. That's the best thing you can do for them. And, you know, what you've um, explained there, hand on my heart, I would never, ever have expected the armed robbery squad to be so, and I understand now from what you're explaining and the passion that you had for your for your job and your fellow colleagues, but I never would have expected the robbers to be that, uh, what's that word, um, so... Compassionate? Yes. Uh, not compassionate, but, well, yes in, a yes, in a way, but more about how you dealt with the victims and the witnesses. Like, I'm used to that from a sex crime uh, uh, position because your witness, you know, without, well, see, here again, I'm making assertions, but I would never have thought that the robbers would have taken that time with the victims and the witnesses. And I don't know why. I think I probably just thought of mm. you and them as tough blokes uh, who, you know, went and got the, the good crooks. And, but yes, the, the time you must have spent and what mm. you did with the victims and witnesses, gee, Dave, yep. you've really surprised, Magoo, you've really, <laughs> you've really surprised me. And I don't mean that as a, um, I don't mean that nastily or, you know, that that's amazing. Hmm. Dave, you were talking before that you don't think you're, you've been psychologically affected by working in the police, but there was a story that maybe you are a little bit, it would be hard not to be, but can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the last 
the last death I investigated, and you know, we all, it's an inevitable part of policing is investigating death in all circumstances. The last one I investigated was a 16 year old who uh, was a detective sergeant at Mulwood, and he, 16 year old, hung himself in the family room because his folks wouldn't let him watch a sh- show he wanted, so he said he'd show oh. them. And um, so he went to school the next morning and they went to work, and he went back into the house and strung himself off the rafters in the family room and to be discovered by mum when she got home at the end of the day. Mm. Very traumatic. Mm. And so we, I got involved in that. And um, I, I don't say that it affects it affected me, mm. but 22 years on, I can still see him and I, can, I still know what he was wearing right down to the red Converse shoes he had. So mm-hmm. those memories stay with you always and um, mm-hmm. I guess when, when things get more complicated, some of those sort of uh, memories flash up. But, yep, just an example of, of what stays with you. Yeah, but, but also I don't think you could do the job that we did and attend something like that and you not think about it. And I, I take my hat off to you because I'd love to be able to, oh, I was going to say I'd love to be able to go to something like that and not, and it sort of, there's a lot of people that compartmentalise mm. their, their work and their home, for instance. I was never able to master that. Mm. But it sounds to me like like you would be in you wouldn't be normal if you never ever thought of that again. But at least you you've been able to put these things oh, I don't know into a basket or whatever you want to call yeah. it, and uh, and and move on. But I don't think you'd ever uh, no. forget something like that, would you? No, you don't. You can never unsee things. Um, I'll give you another. No. The, the worst thing I ever did was. Well, not the worst thing, but an example of it. Yeah. After Wall Street, going up on the homicide floor, talking to one of the investigators, and the crime scene book was there. And I said, is that the scene from Wall Street? Yeah, have a look. Pushed it across, flicked through it, and oh. I wish I'd never had. Um, I can yeah, never get yeah. that out of, my, out of my head. I wish I'd never seen that. Mm. I should have not mm. been so curious. <laughs> but again, it's yeah. like those memories that just, they're all in your head. Yeah, yeah, they are, and uh, yeah, I've I've seen some crime scene photos that well, I've, I think we've all been to mm. crime scenes that you you can't unsee. But also another thing, yes, you can't unsee something, but you also can't unhear something. You can't unsmell something. You know, there's there's smells that stick with you as a police person, isn't there? Oh, Where. Yeah. Like um, the the smell. I'm sorry, but you know, I hope nobody's having their lunch or their dinner. But the 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 smell of um, a decomposing body, for instance, or oh, yeah. the smell. I remember I went to a a young woman that had set herself alight, and she ended up dying. But I will never ever forget that that smell. And even now, um, it's a bit like you with that young boy that hung himself. Um, when I smell, uh, well, meat. Oh, meat. God, this Rotten is meat. Yeah. terrible, isn't it? Yeah. But when I smell meat burning, mm. that's the first thing I think of, but then I'm able to put that, I can put aside. Um, but, yeah, you, you can't ever forget those sort of things, can you? No, no, you don't. This, like you said, you can't unsee it, you can't unexperience it, you can't unsmell no. it, and there's triggers. No. Oh, 
I'll put a oh, funny twist yeah. on this. And we had a, you know, those jobs you used to get where the neighbours say there's a really bad smell coming from the house and <laughs> you get there and think, oh, you get to the door. Yeah. And I was working at South Melbourne in the early 80s and got to the door. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. stinks in here. Something's really bad. Just, someone's passed over, got into the house, got the eucalyptus bottles out of the van, you know, that you used to do to mask the smell. <laughs> and we trawled through the house. Yeah. We were convinced that the occupant had passed away. She was an old lady, lived alone. Well, we searched the house, could not find it. Went out the back, had a little outdoor toilet, um, got to yep. there. That was even worse. So, <clears throat> so one of us is going to have to push that door in. So my officer and I, we, we did it at the same time. We pushed the door open. She was sitting on the toilet. She screamed at us and we screamed back at her. <laughs> there was nothing wrong with that, not until we came along. <laughs> Well, actually, you've, you've just reminded me uh, that I've got a similar story. It didn't end up so well. Yeah, it did end up so well. Um, we had the same thing, you know, the neighbours ring and say, oh, look, there's a terrible smell next door. Uh, anyway, so myself and another policewoman go to the, the, the house and the smell is really bad. And we know that somebody has passed away in there. Yes, the eucalyptus, all that, it didn't help. Anyway, we couldn't get in. So, I don't know why or where we got this idea from, but we went around to the shed and we found there was a chainsaw. None of Both of us had never used a chainsaw in our lives. Mm. Somehow we got the chainsaw working and we had to get through our oh, locks on front doors and all that sort of stuff. And you know when people have got the – they've got a lock to the back door and then you get through and it's like a – I think – do you call it a Vesta lube or something like that? Like it's an out – um, uh, an outer sort of room, mm. and then you've got another back door. Anyway, so we went through two back doors with the chainsaw. We got in, and uh, what it was was actually a, a dog that had passed away. It was underneath the house or something, but we found it eventually. Anyway, when I rang the sergeant to say, oh, Sarge, this is what's happened. Um, we need somebody to come around because we damaged the house. <laughs> and um, And he said... Uh, uh, he was just horrified and he said, did you happen to look in the um, leave of absence book? And we said, no, anyway, the little old lady had put in a leave of absence. She'd gone away for a holiday or something. And um, yeah, anyway, she she wasn't there. She was uh, alive and well. And when she got back home, she was very, very kind and we didn't ever have to pay for the damage we did. But, gee, did we do some damage oh. to that house. Anyway, anyway, moving on. Yep. Um, now, so you then leave uh, in 2000, you left policing yep. because this this um, fantastic uh, job or opportunity came up. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the exposure that you said you had to corruption when you left, left VicPol and you worked, you know, in the corporate world? Did, did that level of corruption in that world surprise you? Hasn't Dave got some great stories? I could listen to him for hours. You'll probably be relieved to know that we don't talk about football once next week, which may please some of you. Next week, we talk to Dave about him leaving policing and moving into the corporate world where he investigated corruption within that world and what a surprise it was for him to learn about the amount of corruption. Anyway, have a great week and we'll speak next week.
it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.